0: And you can get an extra three months free. ExpressVPN.com slash Slash Film.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to Slash Film Daily for October 17th, 2017. On today's show, we're going to be taking a look at a bunch of news, including how Guardians of the Galaxy 3 will kickstart the future of the MCU. Uh, we got the official title for the Han Solo movie, so we'll talk about that. Uh, Netflix has announced how much they're going to be spending on content. Uh, for next year and it's insane and William Shatner has been pitching a way for him to appear in Star Trek Discovery and uh, I have some thoughts on that uh, in the mailbag we'll be talking uh, we'll be taking a reader question about the importance of box office numbers and at the water cooler Ben will share his thoughts on Hamilton which he saw in LA uh, joining me today is Ben Pearson hey what's up And Hwai Tran Bui. Hey everyone. Guys, before we get into today's show, I uh I have a couple uh corrections to <laughs> to to go over, uh both of which are uh for me, th- wrong, uh, things I either said incorrectly or stupidly in the past week of the podcast. So I, I I'd like to just put it out there that's uh you know, that tends to happen sometimes. Uh Tyler Smith pointed out, uh, regarding Gambit's release date, which is, uh, you know, Valentine's Day weekend. I kind of noted that that was kind of strange and a weird time to put a, you know, comic book movie. Well, it worked out for Deadpool. So (laughs) I guess I, I wasn't thinking of Deadpool as a Valentine's Day movie. Uh, something I probably should have looked into before saying on the podcast. And another thing I, um, incorrectly mentioned, we were talking about Tim Burton, or uh, or directors getting uh, credit for movies that they're not responsible. And I mentioned that Tim Garden uh, Tim Burton didn't direct Corpse Bride. He was the co director of Corpse Bride. What I meant to say was he didn't direct A Nightmare Before Christmas. So yeah, <laughs> those are my corrections. <laughs> let's uh, let's now all stroll over to the water cooler because Ben has seen Hamilton uh, at its at its. Uh, Run in Los Angeles I have not seen the show I have not even heard a song from the show I, I really don't know anything about Hamilton Other than I, I love Lynn's uh, work on Moana And uh, obviously Force Awakens But uh, Yes
0: this- So HT have you seen Hamilton Or heard the soundtrack
2: I haven't yet, and I'm also in the same boat as you as before you went to see Hamilton. I've been trying to stay away from the soundtrack as much as possible to get a fresh experience of the show.
0: Interesting. So I don't want to pull this into another spoiler conversation because oh, you guys no. have been talking a lot about <laughs> spoilers uh, on the podcast in recent days. But that is the exact same approach that I took to it. I went into this uh, unsullied, as it were. I, I spent two years avoiding every single song, every everything, and it was tough to do with the people that I follow on Twitter who are obsessed with the show. And, you know, constantly quoting it and all that stuff. It was it was very, um, you know, a lot of people are like, yeah, it wouldn't be that difficult to avoid, uh, you know, all references to Hamilton. But you don't follow the people I follow. So it was uh, it was pretty tough. And I think uh, it paid off because it was an incredible experience. I um, I mean, it's it's weird to talk about because it's been so long since the show came out and debuted and sort of became a phenomenon, it sort of feels like really old news at this point. So it's like, oh, I'm the jerk who's just like, hey, you should go see this because it's great. You're like, yeah, no kidding. That's what everybody's (laughs) been saying for years and years. But um, it really is incredible. And the music is just, I mean, it's like next level stuff. I don't really want to say too much about it because uh, I assume a lot of people haven't had the opportunity to see it yet. And if they're you know, approaching it in the same way I did, um, I don't really want to say I mean, too you, much you, about it. You
1: did know the kind of the premise of it, right? I mean, I basically I knew that there was something
0: about not giving away a shot and it was about Hamilton – and it was uh, all the songs were rap songs. And that's all I knew. Like I knew it was about. And also that the cast Hamilton. was
1: was diverse, a diverse cast. playing.
0: No, I didn't these... even know that. Oh, wow. Really? Know that. Wow. Yeah. You
2: stayed away from that.
0: Yeah. Uh, so it was incredible. Like just I mean, walking in uh, that to that, you know, with that level of uh, of non information and just sort of being blown away like that. I, I was just really trying to preserve the experience of like. Imagining what it must have been like for the first people to go in to see that show, you know, in previews before it became like a big phenomenon or whatever. I just wanted to sort of try to have that for myself. Uh, and I think I've, we managed to pull it off. So um, I will say briefly, and I'll write about this in the water cooler with like uh, later on uh, in the week with a little bit more detailed thoughts about the show itself. But uh, just briefly, I. You know, recently went to Boston and uh, I also watched 1776, the musical movie that stars um, William Daniels, who's the actor who plays Mr. Feeney on Boy Meets World. He plays <laughs> John Adams in that movie. And I think that 1776 is from maybe the 70s or, or the 80s or something. And I, I watched that movie for the first time recently. So all of my, uh, I guess, recent experiences about, The early days, you know, learning about the early days of America really informed um, my viewing of Hamilton and and sort of enhanced that experience of watching that show. And because otherwise I would have gone into it without having given a second thought to the founding fathers and all of that stuff since, you know, a history class that I probably had in high school or something. So uh, if you are planning to go see the show and you know nothing about it, I would say maybe... Yeah, watch some other stuff, some sort of uh, extracurricular, uh, (laughs) loosely related, adjacent, uh, history related kind of stuff just to sort of um, fill in some of the gaps and give you a little bit more uh, appreciation because it really worked out well for me.
1: It it feels like, at least from the little I know of it, it feels like you kind of have to know what happened to appreciate their take on it because it is a take on it. Do you know what I mean? Like it's – it's not the story. It's it's a version of the story. You
0: yeah, I mean, I mean it, it does a really good job of laying out the basic elements, but it sort of references a couple other histori- historical figures that I wouldn't have really given much thought to. Um, otherwise, so it's, you know, just a little bit of, uh, yeah, of yeah. things like that where it sort of enhances the overall, um, vibe and, and, you know, going into it fresh, uh, I would definitely recommend if you have managed to stay spoiler free for it at this point, but, uh, but yeah, it was really great.
1: And I should say, I, since we have talked about spoilers and people are probably wondering why have I stayed away from Hamilton it's not that I don't want to see it I want to see it it's expensive uh here in LA and I've been entering the lottery with no success I might just have to spend the money um but uh the reason why I've avoided it is I kind of find when you go to see a Broadway musical that you're going not because of the story but because of the songs and the performance and I feel like in that scenario, me listening to the mo- uh, to the to, to the uh, the music from the show, it does function as a spoiler. It does spoil that experience. I feel like that's different than than plot points in a movie. But
2: yeah, I know I'm yeah. in the same camp dis- as you. Yeah, I'm in the same camp as you because um I feel like. If I listen to the soundtrack, I won't enjoy it as much without having watched the show just because I'm not getting these songs in context with the story. So it may be a really great soundtrack with great songs, but I don't think I'll get like the full experience I would have of watching the theatrical show.
0: Yeah, and Hamilton is an interesting, um, I guess, exception maybe to that rule because the every single word in the whole thing is part of the soundtrack. A lot of musicals will have you know spoken sections in between big musical numbers, but this it's like every song uh, on the soundtrack, which we bought right afterwards because I was like, man, I gotta listen to this over and over again. Wait, wait a
1: second. It's, so is the it's soundtrack? It's the entire in... thing. Yeah, it's the whole show. Mm-hmm. Oh, so wow. it's like Les Mis. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, maybe I will check it out then, (laughs) because it is a little bit of the context. Like, I don't listen to movie scores before I see the movie, not because I'm worried about them ruining things, which, by the way, they they have in the past. I remember Mm -hmm. episode one, I looked at the movie score, and there was, you know, I'm not sure if there's a... (laughs) <laughs> uh, post on episode one spoilers, but there was Qui-Gon Jinn's funeral was one of the titles that John, uh, Williams put out there on the soundtrack. And that was spoiled for me, you know, weeks before seeing the, f- the film in theaters, but that's not why I, I don't listen to movie scores. It's because I want to see them in context of the film before I listen to them on their own. Uh, yeah. for the same reason, uh, HD met, uh, outlined. Um, but let's get into the news because we've already gone, you know, nine minutes on Hamilton. Which I don't think people were expecting us to do. Sorry, guys. <laughs> uh, it's fine. Uh, <laughs> let's get back to Marvel, guys. Uh, Guardians of Galaxy three. We we know that James Gunn has been saying that that was going to kind of kickstart, you know, uh, twenty years of film uh, uh, storylines for the MCU. But what we didn't know is where Mar- uh, Guardians of Galaxy three would fit in the timeline. We we still don't have a release date. Uh, ben we now know that it's going to kickstart Marvel's Phase 4. What do we know?
0: That is correct. So recently, some headlines have been going around about a statement that Kevin Feige gave uh, in an interview with Uproxx, where he basically was talking about how the two Avengers movies are going to be the conclusion of an unprecedented 22 movie continuous story that the Marvel Cinematic Universe has been, been building toward. And a lot of people have sort of misconstrued those comments into thinking that that means that the Marvel cinematic universe is coming to an end. And that's not exactly what he's saying. He's just saying that this particular specific story that they've been telling of the Avengers forming and, you know, dealing with the infinity stones and Thanos and all of that stuff that is coming to an end. Uh, and we know that uh, guardians of the galaxy volume three is going to be uh, one of the movies or perhaps the movie to kick off a uh, phase four in Uh, the MCU Um, James Gunn sort of uh, had to deal with a lot of people asking questions about what all of this means and is the MCU coming to an end and all of this stuff and he's basically on Twitter he said no read Kevin Feige's quotes and not the static around them it's the end of one long story and the beginning of another and one of the films that will kickstart the new story will be Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 so um that sort of, uh, as Peter mentioned, aligns with what we've heard about Guardians uh, Volume 3 so far that it's going to sort of uh, expand the cosmic side of the Marvel Universe and introduce a bunch of new characters and and set up you know, where the MCU is going to pivot after the events of
1: Avengers 4. That certainly sounds to me that they're going to be going more cosmic in the future. You know, it's there's only so many times that Earth can be in danger and it seems like, you know this next, uh, not just phase four, but, you know, phase four, five, and six, I'm, I'm making this up in my head. Uh, <laughs> it has to be something bigger and grander. I mean, with all sequels, you have to get bigger and grander or that's, you know, the Hollywood, uh, at least what, what tends to happen. Um, but I think it, it's smarter them to go more cosmic with the future. and do you have any thoughts on this?
2: I think it's interesting that, uh, it is going more cosmic and I do welcome that expansion of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But uh, I think we've reported previously that the Spider-Man Homecoming movies will also play a huge part in Phase 4 and there's no way that those stories can go to quite that cosmic that like Guardians of the Galaxy can do. So okay. I wonder how they're going to balance sort of that more world expanding stories um, and more surreal stories with the day-to-day life of Peter Parker.
0: Yeah, I would not be surprised if they do, if they end up splitting it sort of in a half and half kind of way, where half Mm. the movies take place on Earth and then half of them are out in the the outer reaches of space. But we'll see how they decide to go forward
1: with it. And we got a bit of unexpected news on the Han Solo movie as the movie has wrapped production. We now have a title for the film, which is not so surprising. HT, you at this for Slash Film. What do we know?
2: Yeah, so Ron Howard posted on Twitter today a video announcing the wrapping of the Han Solo spinoff movie. And with that uh, video, he announced the official title for the film, which has remained untitled for the past two years since it was first announced. And that title is, drumroll, Solo, A Star Wars Story. So that's in line with a lot of the anthology or anthology the one anthology movie that we've had so far, uh, which was Rogue One A Star Wars Story. So it looks like they're going to be keeping that up with all of the uh, standalone Star Wars movies that we're going to be getting uh, in between the uh, sort of Force Awakens um, main trilogy. Um, So yeah, this is uh, big news. We we expected it to be Han Solo A Star Wars Story, but it looks like it'll just be his uh, chosen surname
1: uh ben do you have any thoughts on this on this title announcement um i mean what what does this (laughs) tell us that we don't know about this movie
0: (laughs) i know that's that's the thing is like i guess and wasn't there all this discussion a while ago about bob Iger talking about whether or not that was his real name and then there was some clarification of that like yes that was actually his real name but Iger didn't really know. He just misspoke there. So yeah, Bob I Iger said
1: that we would find out how he earned the name Han Solo, uh, which <laughs> some people t- took as like, oh, that was not his given name, but uh, yes, we don't know.
0: And now, now that sort of makes me wonder if like, the clarification to that was actually a cover up, if Iger really did know what he was talking about, because... Just by just concentrating on that last name, I don't know. It, it, I'm trying, guys. I'm trying to dig into this as much as I can, and I think that <laughs> that might be uh, the best guess that I can come up with. Is maybe there is something to that name that uh, that Disney doesn't want us to know about quite yet.
1: Uh, a screenwriter on uh, Twitter, Daniel Kunkka, who I know, uh, commented uh, that George Lucas named a character Solo, who literally learned to not k- just care about himself and everyone in 1977 thought that was okay. <laughs> and, uh, th- th- that's something I haven't really thought about. I, even though I've thought about George Lucas's really on the nose, uh, you know, names for people like Darth Vader and like Skywalker. And you do, know I mean like, um, yeah. but, uh, yes, I'm, I'm wondering, I'm wondering if this, if that could, if the name could be retconned by in some way. Um, Who knows? And we also know it's like a big ensemble cast, too. So you would think
0: maybe with just concentrating on the word solo that it might be more about him. But it it seems like with all the people that we know are going to be in this movie that there's a lot of story spread around to a bunch of different people. So, uh,
1: yeah, it'll be interesting to see what that balance looks like in the final film. Moving on, Netflix has announced that they might spend upwards of $8 billion on content in 2018. That includes 80 original films. Ben, you wrote this up for Slash Home. What do we know? That sounds like a lot of money. Yes, after spending
0: $6 billion in 2017 on content, Netflix has decided that they're upping the ante, and yeah, it's possible for them to spend between 7 and $8 billion next year alone, which is totally insane. Um, 80 original films, I assume a lot of those are going to be Uh, Sort of produced in house, but a lot of them are probably going to be acquisitions from film festivals and stuff like that as well. Uh, But $8 billion is a billion dollars more than what Ted Sarandos, the uh, chief content officer of Netflix, previously predicted that the company might spend in 2018. So to be a billion dollars off, that's a pretty good problem to have. If you're like, you know, we're just going to throw an extra bill at it, it's going to be fine. So they, I mean, they've got a lot of money to work with and They've been growing their user base even as you know Amazon and Hulu have been stepping up their game. Uh, Disney has its own streaming service on the way. Apple is going to be getting into the original television content space very soon. So Netflix is doing whatever they can to ensure that... Uh, the user, you know, the subscribers that it has now are going to keep returning to Netflix as a, a source of entertainment because of Netflix original content. That's really where they're putting all of that money um, or as much of it as possible. They do have some, you know, multi-year deals still in place Uh, as far as like licensing acquisitions and stuff like that. But um, a good amount of it is going to be going to original content. And that is definitely the future of Netflix as a company. They they know that, uh, you know, largely because of them and the success of other individualized streaming services, these other studios and companies have realized that the value in having a centralized place for that kind of content and it's just going to get more and more splintered from here. So um, Netflix is uh, is putting their money where their mouth is. I mean, they they cite the acquisition of Miller World. And their deal with uh, Grey's Anatomy and Scandal creator Shonda Rhimes as sort of uh, two pillars of the the direction that they're heading, you know, working directly with the content creators instead of um, licensing the shows or whatever from outside third company parties and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, Netflix, man, they're, that's why they're raising that price, the, the price for um, some of the pricing tiers that HT talked about recently on the show, that $8 billion has to come from somewhere. Yeah.
1: Let's play a little bit of the game here, guys. Uh, HBO how much money do you think HBO spent on content in two thousand seventeen? Do you h- know the answer? I do. h d. What do you think? Um,
2: okay, so there I remember that the Game of Thrones episodes for the next season will cost <laughs> fifteen million each. And that's just one series, but I'm sure that's the most expensive that they have. Oh, uh, I don't know. maybe like maybe fifty million.
1: Well, you got to consider that this includes co- all content, so also movies. Um, you know, acquiring movie rights. Ben, do you have any idea? I mean, I would say God, I'll, I'll, it, I'll say that HT was very low.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I have no I would, idea. I don't know where to, to guess.
1: <laughs> I would say maybe
0: because the, like HBO gets their movies funneled to them through Warner Brothers, which is like part of the same company, right? So I'm guessing they probably don't have to pay very much for that. I don't know. Maybe like
1: maybe like. Uh, Five hundred million or something? Two point five billion dollars. <laughs> wow. What? Uh, we'll do one more. How about ABC? How much does ABC spend on content? Estimated God. in two thousand seventeen. It can't
0: be more than HBO, right? It, <laughs> it, Please tell
1: me it's it, not more than it, it's more Is than it HBO. More than Netflix?
2: Wow, it's more than HBO. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> three billion.
1: Four God, billion. Yeah. 4 billion. Oh my gosh! uh nbc 4.3 billion amazon studios 4.5 billion but obviously netflix is gonna be the highest with seven or eight billion next year um but just goes to show you that, that's like a that's something i found by googling so those in <laughs> those figures might not be true uh don't send me emails saying that i got it wrong again <laughs> uh, but uh, okay let's move on in the news uh William Shatner is pitching an idea of how he can appear in Star Trek Discovery TV series that's now on CBS uh, All Access. Um, HT, you wrote this up for the site. What do we know?
2: Yes. So this was actually in response to a question he was asked by IGN uh, about whether he would be willing to appear in the Star Trek Discovery series, which takes place roughly a decade after the events of the original series, in which he was a uh, young 20-something Captain Kirk. So they would have to do a little bit of a timeline uh, finagling to get this to happen. But he described an idea in which he would be able to make a cameo. And um, he, de- he compared this to his Better Late Than Never uh, co-star Terry Bradshaw, who was a football legend and who's currently um, an aging one at that. So he says, uh, and I quote, Uh, Now he's older, his knees hurt, his back hurts. So here's this aging athlete who isn't what he was in his 20s and 30s. Still carries himself grandly and has a sense of humor and all, but he's not the athlete he was. What what would Captain Kirk be like 50 years later with the sagacity of mind and yet the body doesn't do what he wants it to do? I mean, it's an interesting story. So I don't know if they... They could tell that story in particular in Star Trek Discovery, um, which does take place in the timeline. Yeah, it takes uh, place of, like
1: 10 years before? Uh, after. Or 10 years after?
2: Yeah, 10 years after the original events of Star Trek. And um, Michael uh, Michael Burnham is Spock's adopted sister. So there's like potential for crossover. But it, if there would be crossover, it, Kirk would likely not be pa- played by Michael by William Shatner, but um, maybe he could be de-aged. There is a abundant use of de-aging technology these days, so who knows? But um, yeah, he he seems to be interested in telling a story about an older Kirk. But I don't think that could happen in a Star Trek Discovery.
0: Well, yeah, just to just to stave off the email, the onslaught of emails that might come. I'm looking this up and it, it, I think it does take place 10 years before uh, the original series.
2: Oh, OK, I'm sorry, um, it's 10 years after. But but um, yeah,
0: the, you're talking about de-aging. That's that was the first thing that came to mind in my mind, because, you know, we've got so many. It seems to be like every, you know, fifth major studio blockbuster movie these days is sort of experimenting with this technology. And Star Trek Discovery is one of the most expensive shows on i was gonna say on television but on streaming or whatever you want to call it um so they probably have the budget to pull something like that off it's a matter of whether or not
1: they would but. do you think they have the budget of big blockbuster films though i feel like it's not quite up there even though they're doing how much was it like an episode it was i think it was like eight million or something yeah. but that's for it like an hour of tv so you're looking at yeah. you know a the difference of like a 200 million dollar Film for 2 hours for you know 16 million for 2 hours so yeah, it, yeah. it's a big uh the uh, a big um well, what's the word I'm looking for disparity yeah or disparity yeah. yeah there um and um there's also the fact that like if they were going to have Kirk as older Kirk on the show that you know there are movies that have storylines uh, that I don't want to spoil, but make that impossible to happen. Well, I guess it doesn't make it impossible because this is sci fi and you can do anything. But he was pitching JJ Abrams this kind of idea to bring him in for when he was rebooting the Star Trek uh movie series and JJ Abrams was like, You're you're nuts for not doing that <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I'm I'm putting you know, I'm making up words here. But uh I don't know. It just seems like oh, it would be cool to see an older Kirk, but the logic that you would have to put in the storyline to make that happen would be too much. It would just be too much. It would be like bad comic book writing to explain that, I think. Um, Yeah. Do you think there's any way to explain how he's there? I mean,
2: I don't, I think he could play a completely different character than Kirk. That's the only way I could see him making an appearance on Discovery, just a cameo, but of a different character.
1: I guess they could do that. That that could work, but I'm I'm sure Shatner wants to be Kirk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so that does it for the news. Uh, Not much news going on this week. Uh, It's been kind of a slow news week thus far. Uh, In the mailbag, uh, we try to answer questions... Uh, almost every day from you, the listeners, you can send the questions to Peter at SlashFilm.com. Please mention your name and general geographic location in case we mention the question on the air. Logan in Seattle writes in uh, in response to the stu- the studios complaining about Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic. He writes in uh, completely ridiculous arguments, if you ask me, and trying to understand what the real culprit is against movies of quality that the the reason I don't buy Rotten Tomatoes kills Hollywood thing is because of all the measures... I'm sorry. All the measurements, Blade Runner 2049 should have made billions. It had a great Rotten Tomato score, great Metacritic score and IMDb scores, great early buzz. So why does one of this year's best films now feel like a failure to the masses? Well, I think that's because our obsession with box office results. And he, he goes into, you know... You know, a friend, you know, he he mentioned on, on Facebook that he was people should see this movie. And the friend was like, oh, it only made this much money. It, you know, it's probably not good. Uh, and I've seen that on Twitter before. I see, you know, there's a, we we put we not as a site, um, but as a society in a, the industry culture puts, I think, a great importance on box office numbers. So I guess the question let's go through a couple questions here. Why are box office numbers reported everywhere? <laughs> um
0: So I think it's something that where it seems like it's only been in the past few years where this has really become a big thing. And I, I wonder if it's the studios sort of pushing this or just uh, movie writers looking for a new angle on things. I mean, there's always been box office reporting, but it seems to have gotten more intense. And it seems like the gamif- gamification or something of Hollywood where it's like, The studios, I'm sure, love that all of these fans are basically playing uh, fantasy studio executives and, you know, paying attention to all of the money and all of that stuff. It's just like a different avenue for people to um, explore the entertainment industry and and that side of the movie business. But I think, you know, we'll talk about this in a minute, but the idea that box office numbers are an indication of quality is sort of crazy. But I'm not quite sure why they're reported on um, quite as much as they are right now. HT, uh, do you have any thoughts?
2: Yeah, I don't know personally any uh, audience members who go to movies depending on uh, their box office success. Um, I know that it's become recently uh, more used as a litmus lit- test for the um, success overall success of a movie based on the studio executive side. So... It, I'm not sure if, like, the audiences really take that into consideration, though. See, so,
1: I, would, I would disagree with that. I think that sometimes, it doesn't happen a lot, but sometimes there's a movie like Avatar that is doing, you know, bonkers business at the box office. And and there's kind of like, it's not just like, you know, it's part of pop culture and I need to go see it. It's like, I need to go see this thing that, every, you know, that is making mm-hmm. all this money. And I think it happens with, you know... There'll be like horror films, like The Conjuring, when that came out and was doing a huge, but you know, business at the box office. That people are like, "Oh, maybe I got to go see this thing." Um, And it's a weird it earlier this year. Yes. I
2: wouldn't call that box office box office success, though. I would say that is uh, down to word of mouth, which I wouldn't wouldn't um, conflate with with the two, because I think that word of mouth is a really powerful indicator and is a Um, like if people hear other people that they know saying this is a great film or they're hearing that hearing a lot of great buzz, then they'll go see it, but they won't exactly go to look up how well it's doing at the box office. I think, I think like it's the box office reports are more of a way of, um, informing them that this movie is out because people will, you know, see it on the news or read it in the paper. Like this is doing well at the box office. So, um, people will think that sometimes equates to good word of mouth as well. So, um. Yeah. That was kind of a roundabout answer, but...
1: Yeah, we and we should say that this is obviously the movie business, so there are a lot of sites that, you know, it's all about making a profit, it's not about... making an artistic endeavor uh, as much as people would like it to be. You know, these studios are investing this money to get a return. That is more than what they put into it. And, uh, you know, I guess every Monday we get all these sites and actually it's become sooner. It's during the weekend. They know on Friday night, what a movie is going to do for the weekend based on, you know, historical and all that kind of stuff. Um, usually down to like a million dollars. And, um, I I think that's important from a business perspective, but I'm not sure it's an important from our our perspective or from a fan perspective. It is interesting because we don't cover the box office uh um results every week. We did do the summer movie wager on on the site and on Slash Filmcast. Um so that was a bit of fun. Uh we will cover box office when it's a big success or big failure, like you know when when it was doing, you know, huge uh business we 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 wrote about that because that was a film that we we thought people should go see and we and i i think that that buzz does help a little bit and i think when something fails big time uh you know like valerian or whatnot you know we talk about that as you know a a major failure for that studio and as you know not just as an artistic endeavor but as for business but okay so let's get into what ben was hinting at is uh is box office is the box office number an indication of quality? HT.
2: I don't. I don't think that's the case usually. Um, you, sh- what we see a lot of the time is that box office movies that do well at the box office are movies that are backed by the studios and are often made to be big hits. And often the case with that is we don't really get quality films. Uh, we. Over the summer, we kind of saw a sort of subversion of that with movies like The Mummy and Baywatch failing uh, critically and commercially. But the case usually is like Pirates 5, that's going to be a guaranteed success. So a lot of money is going to be invested into it and it's going to do really well at the box office, but the reviews won't be over the moon. So... Yeah, and I, the, I think I, it has
1: to do with them trying to hit the broadest possible audience. Like, so, so yeah. they're writing these films to not, uh, you know, be smart or clever because that, you know, for people that, you know, don't want to think and go to the uh, movies or, do you know what I mean? Or won't catch. Yeah, they that.
2: have it down to an equation, essentially.
1: Yeah. Um, ben, any thoughts on the box office I- being an indication of quality?
0: Yeah, I can't think of. Any time when that's really
1: been true I think it's
0: just coincidental when it happens to coincide but I think Valerian is a good example Peter I didn't even see that movie uh, I haven't got a chance to yet but I know a lot of people talking about how ambitious that film was and how you know packed full of ideas and like maybe Dane DeHaan's performance wasn't great but it's still a movie worth seeing to make up your own mind about and it just didn't really do very well at the box office. You know, it might be a huge flop, but that doesn't mean it's a bad movie. There's, there's a, you know, and a lot of what H. T. was talking about applies here too, where the studios will, um, you know, sometimes they, they have to sort of pick their horses, so to speak, as far as which ones they back and which ones they put the most money into the ad campaigns. A lot of times, Movies won't do well just because people don't know about them. They don't know that they're out. And, but that doesn't mean that they're bad movies either, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So th- there are a lot of factors that go into the stuff. But um, I, I don't think I, – I, if anyone tells you that box office is an indication of quality,
1: I would certainly look at them, <laughs> uh, you know, w- with some serious side eye. Yeah, I think um, – another qu- question I wanted to get to was uh, – if then, what what do box what do box office numbers tell us about a movie? And you know, I'll, I'll provide my answer to this. Is I think they aren't unvaluable. Um, they obviously tell us how successful a movie is, and I think in a way that tells us, you know, is there an audience for this kind of movie, this genre? This you know, right now, superhero genre it's really huge. Uh, right now, you know, these R rated horror films are really huge. That tells us about where. Not, w- not just about us as a people, uh, what the pop culture is craving right now, but also where we're headed. Because the decisions that are being made right now in Hollywood are based on those box office numbers today. And, you know, because it did huge numbers, we're going to see a ton of Stephen King adaptations in the future. We're going to see a ton of R-rated movies in the future. You know, because Deadpool did so well, you know, that's, that's why we're going to see uh, all these comic book movies that are pushing the R and uh, I think it's important in that way because when you see the success of failure of things like you see the failure of Valerian you know that we're not going to get these ambitious sci-fi you know space operas uh, other than like you know probably Star Wars and that kind of and what Marvel is doing uh, you, you kind of get an indication of it, it, it's a I would say a thermometer of, of what what Is the culture now? Uh, Do you guys have any thoughts on? uh, What do box office numbers tell us?
2: Yeah, I agree with that. I think when it comes down to it, Hollywood is a business and these box office numbers are a huge part of that business because uh, nowadays the movie industry and the movie landscape is kind of overtaken by high high high-budget blockbusters and or either either that or low budget uh, indie movies, and you don't see a lot of the mid budget films uh, where you see some more of that creative um, those creative leaps. But um, because movies are bigger budget and they're trying to reach a wire, wider audience, we have to see like executives want to see whether that will be a success or not, and it's an indicator of whether we will continue to see uh, those kind of films or those. Or sequels for example which is also a huge part of the movie landscape so yeah i completely agree with you peter it's it's basically just um uh the gauging the audience interest in these kind of stories and these kind of movies and continuing along that path of uh, creative and narrative storytelling
1: oh and one last thing because we're talking about spoilers and this discussion will never end um, you know, a lot of people are pointing out that Blade Runner twenty forty nine that the the marketing for that campaign was so secretive, didn't reveal almost anything about the plot whatsoever or the characters. Didn't tell us anything. It just kind of presented a mood uh, that that was the reason for that film failing. Is that true? Who knows? You know, there's no way to indicate if that that is the case. But I think something like that when when a, a film like Blade Runner twenty forty nine uh fails in this respect and people are blaming the marketing you know in the future you're going to see you know you're not going you're to you're not going to see advertising campaigns that are as uh spoiler light as that as teasery as that and you know so it it also affects things like marketing it's not just the films that we're getting ben what are your yeah, thoughts Yeah,
0: that, that's a good point i mean i think you guys have have pretty much nailed it there um I think describing it as a thermometer is a really good way to go about it because it's basically just, um, yeah, indicating whether or not we're going to see a lot of the same thing. I mean, looking at the, the only thing that box office numbers for me are are um, the only value that they have. They don't have a value for me as far as determining whether or not I'm going to go see something. But it's more of like, um, I guess, enhancing the, the uh, like, uh, knowing how something is performing overseas, for example, you know, it does a really good job of, of sort of giving you an idea of whether or not um, a movie is going to be able to, uh, you know, get a sequel that it maybe wouldn't have otherwise uh, because it flopped in the U.S. I'm thinking of like Pacific Rim Uprising or something like that, you know, where you can look at box office numbers uh, domestically and internationally, and those tell a story as well. So maybe that that sort of crafts a separate narrative of... You know how the movie is doing, then, um, than just looking at. I just can't get my mind around the idea that somebody would look at the box office receipts and say, "Oh, what this movie only made ten million dollars this weekend." Now, screw that! I'm not going to see it because that's just it's insane to me.
2: I want to point out that um, the interesting thing about Blade Runner. Blade Runner 2049 is that people are kind of pointing fingers at the marketing or the fact that it's a sequel or the fact that um, it's not along the lines of a typical Hollywood film uh, or the box office uh, value, uh, box office records, I'm assuming. Um, So I know I have a lot of casual moviegoers in my family, and I know for a fact that they would not enjoy Blade Runner twenty forty nine in the theater because it's so ambitious and so uh, moody and slow. And I think it's a gorgeous, lovely film, but it's not a film for everyone. And I think that's interesting because we do gauge, you know, the success of a film based off of, you know, this the financial success, and that sort of spills down to uh, the critical and the um. Sort of the buzz around it, uh, but if it's not a movie that still appeals to a large number of people, I think that it—that's kind of—that was kind of the case with Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Um, I think it's—it's it's not because of marketing or box office numbers in that case. It's just because it's such an ambitious and different film that people are choosing not to see it because they know they won't enjoy it.
1: Fair if enough. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, I think we've gone in depth on this box office discussion. Uh, if you have a question for us, send it to peter at slash film.com. Please leave your name and general geographic location. Uh, you can find more Ben at Ben Paris on Twitter. You can find more of HT at H. Tran Buoy on Twitter and the Millennial Falcon podcast. Uh, you can find me at Slash Film. You can find all the articles discussed today on Slash uh, This podcast is published every weekday on Slash Film on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. Please go to iTunes, give us a rating, give us a review, share this podcast with your friends and family, help us out, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow.